Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Adam. How are you feeling? I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> How are the woods? The woods were beautiful. They were yellow. They were glorious, glorious colors. It was, it was a beautiful, beautiful escape from the city. Feeling refreshed? Yes. Well, yes, the woods were refreshing. It was also very interesting, like on the, on the heels of the Nadavayal conversation. Um, we were deep into Trump land out there in the woods. So we, there were Trump signs everywhere. And we even stopped at a diner and <laughs> we got to the takeout counter and we're, like, we're ordering our chili. And like, lo and behold, I look behind uh, my partner's shoulder and there is a hovering full-size cardboard cutout of, of President Donald Trump just presiding over our meal. So that was that was interesting. He was there in spirit and cutout. Mm-hmm. Among the chili, <laughs> he was there. Which is a follow-up to our Smirconish episode. Yeah, there the, you go. There are the Reagan and the sausages and Trump, Trump and, and the, the chilies. There we are. Well, speaking of politics... Uh-huh. <laughs> Speaking of politics, um, to our guests this week, we have Mr. Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and Alistair Smith, who are the authors of a book you may have heard of called The Dictator's Handbook. They're both professors at NYU for politics. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this book is pretty interesting. The theory that it posits is that every single kind of government, be it a dictatorship, be it a democracy or anything in between, they're all kind of driven by the same factors and they're all about just different ways that leaders maintain power. And so the, the things that you think would be distinguished between them or the things that you think may dis- be distinguishing factors between them actually aren't. They're all kind of driven by the same set of rules. And it's all about keeping the coalition happy. And the coalition is a word that they are going to use a lot, but they specifically refer to the people around the leader that are essential for her or him to gain power and keep it. And the interesting thing is that the difference between a democracy and a dictatorship, according to this model, is really just a difference of strategy for keeping that coalition happy. And all the benefits of a democracy, like open education and free speech, are a byproduct of this difference in strategy, not the desired end in and of themselves. They also use the term selectorate, which I quite like. It's a very very elite term there. Right. And that just basically means the people who, in a certain regime, either are really involved in selecting the leader or at least perceive themselves as um, doing so. I think think it will be clear. So anyway, I do want to apologize if this podcast brought a bit too much academies. Um, But, you know, that's we 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 live and learn you, you let us know oh for for the for the people who might be angry at the academies we just uh, started the daunting task of also having social media accounts and just launched this week so follow us we'd love to hear what you thought about the conversation who you think we should be talking to what questions you're interested in etc etc we would love to to learn and improve and, and give you the content that you crave. How do the people follow us, Adam, on the social medias? We are at Uncertain Pod on, on all of them, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the all the social dilemmas. Cool. Well, with that, shall we get shall we let Bruce and Alistair yes. take it away? Yes. Here we go. Alistair, Bruce, thank you for joining us. For starters, you both teach at NYU. How did you how did you meet each other? How did you get started on the project? Alistair, you want to start? Uh, sure. I guess I went to graduate school in 1990 and 
This strange professor showed up one day who decided to teach a six-hour class. It turned out to be Bruce, and it turned out I was really fascinated by the idea of using math and science to explain politics. I guess at some level I'd actually always been thinking about politics in that way, but I'd never really studied the social sciences, so I, I took to it naturally. And so I became a student uh, of Bruce's and wrote my PhD under his supervision. And then I sort of went off and did my own stuff for a bunch of years. And then we started collaborating, I guess, what, mid-1990s, late-1990s. And we've been basically, this is one of the projects that's persisted all the way through. And about 10 years ago, we decided it would be really nice to try and translate the technical uh, and statistical approaches that we use into common language because we think we found that people get the ideas very quickly. We found that it's got a lot of practical applications, that it actually says things about real-world politics, and it provides actionable solutions that we know policymakers are interested in. And so that's why we wrote the Dictator's Handbook. And it's basically translating technical game theory, maths, and statistical evidence into a palatable, uh, historical case-driven approach to understanding politics. Let's get into it. What are the basic principles of your theory as you've inscribed them for popular consumption? Well, so... Oh. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to, I may as well get a word in edgeways now. <laughs> At a certain point, Bruce will go off, and you won't have noticed, I've, I will have gone off to pick up my kid from uh, <laughs> childcare, and you won't even notice that I'm gone. Bruce will still be talking. So let me, let me get in. So we started with some very simple fundamental ideas. We believe that politicians are self-interested. They want to stay in power. And we believe that the circumstances they find themselves in dictate how best they do it. And we sort of built everything from those very simple premises. And then we thought about how do we classify the circumstances that leaders find themselves in a coherent way that we can map all the way across all kinds of organizations from large mass franchise democracies down to kingdoms and theocracies, or we can also look at things in terms of firms or charities, or I might even say political science departments. We, and I would actually like to hear how this applies to political science departments, if you'll be willing to talk about it. But before we get into the <laughs> departmental course. gossip, so what, what, is, what are the, the, the core principles? The, well, the, the key ideas that we think of is how many people do you need the support of to stay in power? And from how big a body do you get to pick those key supporters that you need? So in, for example, the United States, we think of it as a democracy. Um, and you probably need something like 22% of the people who vote to support you and able to win the, the House and the uh, House and the presidency. It's significantly less than the half that you probably think of as a democracy because you only have to win half of the Electoral College votes to become president. So that's half the votes in just enough states to win. So that's significantly less than a half. Um, and if we were to go down to a place like North Korea, we've had arguments of you know whether, whether it's six or seven people that are really important in North Korea. And of course, this dictates 
how best to reward people. If you have to keep half a dozen people happy, you can just pay them off, give them cash, give them a wonderful, beautiful house and a, a, a wonderful lifestyle, but you can't just hand out money to tens of millions of people. And so you have to have effective public policy. So that's the, that for us is the big distinction about how politics works. Okay, so just to make sure we got this first, what determines the difference between different types of government has very little to do with the ideology of the leader or the political theory underlying the regime, but with the existing incentive structures with which the leaders need to interact in order to gain power and stay in power? Yeah. Indeed, you know, being super cynical, um, ideology is, wind is window dressing. Uh, if I can borrow from Karl Marx, ideology is the opiate of the people. Uh, it's, an, it's a simple organizing principle to gather support, but it's pretty tough to find examples of leaders who, for example, were willing to lose power but stick to their ideological beliefs. Now, my favorite example prior to the current president, uh, was Strom Thurmond. Uh, Strom Thurmond was an avid segregationist. When the Voting Rights Act was passed, he realized that there were going to be a lot of African-American voters in South Carolina. And his approach to civil rights legislation became utterly changed, more positive, because otherwise he couldn't get reelected. Who was the real Strom Thurmond? Probably the segregationist. But pretty much on a dime, he flipped when he realized his, his winning coalition had shifted. He needed people he didn't need before. So to connect it back to Alistair, a crucial factor, the main variable in your theory, is the coalition that a leader needs to depend on in order to get and stay in power. The larger the coalition, the more like a democracy the government will look like. The smaller, the more like an autocracy. But that is the key factor. That's not the only factor, but it's, it's the driving factor. We sort of have five simple rules in our book. You know, number one is uh, keep the coalition as small as you can. Well, number two is pick as many supporters as you can. Number three is make sure all the revenue goes through your hand. It may be inefficient to, like, in some sense, effectively tax at a very high rate and then hand it back out. It's economically inefficient, but then everyone's beholden to you. And then you always want to make sure you pay a coalition, and you don't want to do anything for the people that you don't have to. Never, never try and make the people better off at the expense of your supporters. You know, but you know the classic case I think of of someone who tried to make the people better off at the expense of his coalition was Julius Caesar. So everyone says Julius Caesar, they killed him because he wanted to be king. Well, he already was king. There was no doubt about that. The reason they killed him was he wanted to relieve the debt burden of the citizens who owned all the debt, all the senators who stabbed him to death. Um, he tried to help the people and his coalition turned on him. So if the rule of thumb here is that you want to keep your coalition small to keep power, how is it that democracies can come into being at all? So initially, as you make that coalition bigger, 
the members are dividing the, the, the goodies among more people. So each of them on average is getting less. But, but the amount of money being spent to keep the coalition loyal keeps increasing as that ratio increases. So eventually the extra money being spent swamps the lost private goods, the goodies, and begins to improve the welfare of coalition members. And once the welfare of the coalition is better when, the, when, when that group is very large, rather than when it's very small, then you have locked in democracy. And contrary to what Karl Marx thought, you have made the government immune from revolution and immune from coup d'etat. So I want to get deeper into that. Why are democracies more immune or resilient to revolution? And with that in mind, I still want to get deeper into why you understand democracies and dictatorships as basically existing on a spectrum, not qualitatively different. And I would, I would, also, I would also ask if, if it, like piggybacking on that, is, is there a golden ratio for a more stable government and a different golden ratio for a more prosperous government and is that also uh, a, a, an aspect okay. go ahead so so both of like take on both of these things so the key he- thing here is unlike most people who think of democracy and autocracy as distinct categorizations of government that should be separate, talked about separately we think of everything as a continuum all the way from North Korea Up, up to the United States. We think of all of these lying, and it's just the scale. It's not that they're qualitative different. They have different sizes. Now, you, you went straight to an immediate point. What is best? And the point is, what is best? We study politics, so we like to think about, you always have to ask, what, what is best for whom? So for a political leader, the ideal political arrangement is to have, be dependent upon very few people but you get to pick them from a large, large set of people. The key there is there's lots of replacements. So Lenin was brilliant in devising the sort of a corrupt electoral system that he built under communism. Anybody could rise to be an important person in the Soviet regime, but the chance of doing so was really, really tiny because there were many candidates, but very few would reach the top. This produces huge loyalty because... You're well rewarded if you're a member of the Politburo or a, a high-ranking official in, in a communist government. But there's tons of replacements to have you. So you know you have to be loyal because you, once you're out, life is miserable for those on the outside. So the leaders want very they want to be beholden to nobody and get to find have a big pool of replacements. What about the members of the winning coalition? Well, Bruce just talked about that. It's actually, there's two ways to do that. You either want to be the member of a small system like a military hunter, or you want to be the mem- uh, a member in a large democracy. That middle ground is where there's real differences in the incentives of like the, the leader and the incentives of the court around him. So the coalition could either have a purge or they could have expansion of the franchise. The king always wants to contract things. And, who, and what about the people who are outside of the system, the non-winners? Well, I would say outside the system, but they're not the current winners under the system. For them, it's always better to increase the size of the coalition. They always want democracy. Revolutionaries always come to power promising democracy right up until the point they become the new leaders or the new leadership team, all of a sudden they're incentives. It's not that they have changed what they believe would be good governance. It's now that their leader 
they no longer have incentives in making it accountable to the people because they they're the one that's now being held to account. So you know we see people like Castro come to power with promises of you know power to the people right up until he gets in. Then he purges his own supporters and sets up a system where he's beholden to very few people. So we, we the answer to what's the best kind of government is depends who you ask. So you described the, the that middle range as the the place of instability where regimes get replaced and and heads fly. The 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 two other extremes are you describe as the the junta situation where there is perfect alignment between a leader and the the his essential supporters that he needs to keep happy with graft and with with redistributing wealth. And the on the other extreme, the where where the selectorate is wide enough or the and the essential is is big enough where you get what we call normally a democracy. But I'm wondering, just looking at today, like how I can I can see how the 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 small coalition situation is stable and and you can see that that's the uh, I think you even give North Korea the the prize of the best. Uh, the best student of the the dictator's uh, handbook <laughs> but how are democracies stable so stability arises in the way that we think of it from two conditions what are the chances that you can succeed in rebelling against the government and what is your desire or utility for re- rebelling against the government so in Places like North Korea, the probability of being able to coordinate enough people to rise up together and defeat, overthrow the government is, is tiny. And, and so it's, of course, a very costly thing to do. It's very risky. So people don't, don't do it. And starvation and, helps. Yes. Uh, in, in a uh, stable democracy, people's chances of uh, succeeding if they... organized to rise up against the government are very high, but they're getting lots of public goods, lots of benefits, good policy. So their incentive to rebel, rebel is diminished. So at the upper end of things, you're getting enough that you don't have a desire to rebel, and the members of the coalition are getting enough enough because they're far enough out on that scale of a lot being spent um, that they don't have an incentive to uh, rebel or, or launch a coup to get rid of the leader because they can rely on the self-corrective mechanism of their interests and the people's interests being mutually aligned when you're up at that high end. Where there are tons of benefits, and so you're already getting the goodies. The marginal gain that's available is very small relative to the costs of rebelling, so you don't rebel. You mentioned public goods as kind of something that incentivizes uh, stability among peop- the people. And, and I assume that when you're talking about public goods, you're talking about Uh, infrastructures like things like you know roads and schools and, and things like that um, yeah. health it, health yeah exactly but when I look when I look at the US today I see us at a place where a lot of the public goods are at the brink of collapse infrastructure crisis health system crisis um, wh- what is that 
But basically, select a good and add the word crisis to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so what what does that indicate about the the state of America's democracy right now? Well, I think what it indicates is that we are uh, on the path for a correction in uh, the, the the way we have been going. I would not describe where we are uh, as in the crisis in the, in the narrow use of that word. Uh, it is true, for example, that infrastructure in the United States has decayed quite a lot over the past few decades. But infrastructure in the United States is vastly superior to infrastructure in North Korea, uh, where Kim Jong-un, the head of the government, doesn't have himself a decent airplane to get him to Singapore. Yet to yet to use a, a Chinese plane. So we, we want to be careful about distinguishing between what is really a crisis and what is hyperbole about crisis. So the United States is a bit of a mess, in my view, at the moment, and we have a corrective, a self-correcting system uh, that is likely to self-correct in another few weeks, uh, and clearly. Uh, the United States also has a leadership that understands the rules in the dictator's handbook. They would, the leadership would very much like to shrink the winning coalitions they have to have by suppressing voting, and particularly suppressing voting among those voters who are not likely to vote for them. Uh, and they would, they would like to uh, shift policies in a way that lock in their coalition, a relatively small coalition, and lock out everybody else. I mean, that's, you know, that, that is what every leader, if they can get away with it, would like to do from our point of view. But it is a self-correcting system because the institutional structure has created limits to how far you can move the winning coalition. So it is true that Donald Trump uh, did not win the popular vote, and he only won about 46% of the uh, popular vote. It's also true that Abraham Lincoln won less than 40% of the popular vote, and that John Quincy Adams won less than 37% or 38% of the popular vote. So uh, Trump was a long way from uh, the experienced bottom and a much longer way from the bottom that Alistair uh, indicated mathematically exists for the United States, which is 22-23%. Um, so the Electoral College is a mechanism that distorts our democracy. In the British system, you can't win with only 20% in a two-party race. You need a minimum of a little over 25% in uh, the German uh, proportional representation system where the lists are at the, the lender, the sort of, so to speak, state level, you need a larger coalition. Um, so we are not the paragon of most accountable government, but we are a self-correcting government. Can I just pick up on one point that Bruce had there? Because I think there's a key way to think about the Electoral College as a problematic institution for promoting public welfare. and. Most people tend to think that the Electoral College is, is not a great system because sometimes the person that gets the most votes doesn't mm -hmm. win. 
That for us, that, that may be problematic, but that for us is not the key distinction. The key distinction is that we know that several states lean very heavily Democratic, and we know that several states lean very pro-Republican. So the number of states that are actually in play is relatively small, and we, we all sort of know Wisconsin and uh, Florida are going to be extremely important in the election. So if you actually want to become president, who do you actually have to make happy? It turns out you don't give a damn about people in California, and you don't give a damn about people in Montana. What you do is you just have to pick off about half of the voters or half the people who you will allow to get to the polls in those key battle states. So you're not trying to make half the US population happy. You're trying to make a small fraction of the people that you can't suppress the vote of in a relatively small number of states happy. That's a relatively small fraction of the US population. And that's it, I, it, so I think that the Electoral College is a very insipid institution, but I don't think of it is being insipid because it sometimes produces the wrong winner. It's because it provides incentives to not promote policies that help half the American people. It's half the people or a fraction of the people in a select number of states. You see how the, we're translating from what we think is nominally democratic into what do I need to win? I said we can push that a little further because it was a recent Supreme Court decision regarding the Electoral College. Um, Alistair and I drafted an op-ed that nobody wanted to publish, but uh, I think carried a very important message. Um, and that is, if the court had allowed the idea that members of the Electoral College could vote their conscience rather than be constrained by state law to vote for whoever, uh, in most states, won the plurality in the states, and in, in some states it's apportioned, uh, if they had allowed that the electors could vote their conscience, then the winning coalition in the United States, instead of being millions, would be 270. It would be, all you would have to do is persuade 270 electors. That, had the court allowed that, it would have converted the United States from a large coalition, reasonably democratic society, into a rigged election autocracy in which 270 people counted instead of millions. I, I think this is a really valuable point. It, it brings up one of the things that I love about your book, which is how it challenges some of the complacent and easy assumptions and solutions that people bring into their worldview. So, for instance, when Trump got elected, we started hearing a lot about the problem in the Electoral College and the calls to abolish it. And even more interestingly, I remember there was a lot of talk about faithless electors. There were serious people who were hoping to see electors voting against the decision of their state in order to prevent Trump from taking office. And yet, from your perspective, even though you clearly expressed the problem in the Electoral College in the way that it interfaces with the democracy, you took a stand against empowering the faithless electors because it will turn the dial all the way away from democracy and into a tiny coalition government. Absolutely. We would be, just to give a parallel, uh, when the United States, after the Iraq War, wrote a constitution 
or Iraq, it wrote a constitution that, when you dug into the depths of what it said, created a winning coalition of 276 people. And that is the mess that uh, Iraq then became. We would be that mess. At the same time, we are at least witnessing the increasing ability, I mean, not just Trump, uh, this is a process that has been ongoing for, for decades, of, of leaders selecting their voters, and, and this is a process that goes far deeper than the Electoral College, as we know through gerrymandering, as we know from um, 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 the, the different rules that apply in different states and different counties for, or for election. Right now, Pennsylvania is going through uh, an incredibly protracted process deciding who can vote where, how, who can watch the polls, and, and obviously Pennsylvania is one of the states um, in, 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 in big demand for, um, for politicians. So those questions do get answered on a non-democratic level, and, and sometimes leaders have the ability to shrink the coalition that they need to depend on, and this is constantly happening. Is the, is this, the fact that the United States is such a, a, a subdivided federal system make it more prone to become or to lose some of its nominal democracy-ness? So we would do well to remember that gerrymandering is named after a founding father, who invented it, Eldritch Jerry. It's not a new thing. It's not a Republican thing. It's not a Democrat thing. It's a politician thing, because all politicians, from our cynical point of view, would like to shrink their winning coalition as much as they can. And they are constrained because, in a reasonably democratic system, the opposition doesn't want to let them shrink it until they're in power, and then they want to shrink it. So there's this constant tug of war. Uh, the United States has lots of elements, uh, gerrymandering being one, that facilitate shrinking the coalition. We have sore loser laws in most states. Uh, sore loser laws say if uh, you run in a primary and you lose, then you cannot run as an independent or some other party uh, for the office that you lost in the primary. Primary turnout is often very low, often 5-6%. Uh, so you might lose in a primary against a bunch of other people, uh, even though in the general electorate you would be the most popular candidate. So the sore loser laws shrink the winning coalition by precluding you, who could muster more votes in the general election, from running. Um, pretty much all democracies invent ways to restrict the size of the coalition, uh, they're incredibly inventive. They're, they're, there's, I, I, we wrote a paper a few years ago um, on how Tanzania works. Tanzania is generally regarded as having free and fair elections. And Tanzania has the peculiarity uh, that, um, at least at the time we did our study, the average parliamentary district had 10 candidates running, even though it was a Westminster system, that is, Whoever got a plurality of the votes won, which uh, tells us there should be a two-party system, something called Duverger's Law. Well, a little bit of digging uh, revealed that the, that the party in power, the Chama Mapanduzi uh, Party, the CCM, uh, had constructed a system where you could get rewarded for running uh, candidates locally, 
um, so that the total vote required to win was much smaller. So whereas it's a first-past-the-post, nominally should be two-party system, you could win districts with as little as 6 or 7% of the vote. And as a consequence, the CCM won overwhelming votes because once you understood that they were going to get a little past that minimal margin, you bandwagoned it, paid to join up uh, to vote for them because then you might get some goodies coming into your community. Um, lots, every, every, every political system looks for ways to shrink the coalition. Uh, every democratic system does. The United States is not unusual in that regard. It's not even, you know, particularly exceptional in its skill at doing it. All leaders want to shrink their coalition. Right. And yet we're in a very specific moment right now in American politics. There's a lot of heightened energy, partly because of the pandemic and lockdown, and part because of the unique nature of the Trump administration and how it affects people's psyche. But there's a mutual concern on both sides around the procedure and the fear of stolen representation. So for Democrats, the fears of election integrity is that their votes don't count as much. That's the mechanism that we talked about before. And for Republicans, it's the perceived threat of voter fraud. So do you see this fear as a symptom of a deeper pathology that would require correction? Or is this something that is just endemic to American political life? Actually, we should just go straight back to the conversation we had earlier about what kinds of governments do people want. And so the people who aren't the winners, who aren't the political insiders, they always want to enlarge the coalition. It's never in their interest that the coalition becomes smaller because the government will spend relatively less of the income on public goods, and so they will, they will see their welfare decline. And so I think people, are, when we see people protesting against uh, people being excluded from the polls or the possibility that the, the, their votes will be swamped by, by electoral fraud, is actually the, exactly the response that we would expect people to see. They want democratic systems, particularly the outsiders, because in a democratic system, the government win, that you stay in power by providing public goods, by doing things that are good for the people. And so that's exactly the response that we should expect. And, and people are pushing, pushing back and saying, we, we want to be able to vote. We want to be able to vote by mail. Um, and, this is, and this is precisely what we'd expect. It, 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 it completely sits with the framework that we, we, we started talking about that. You know, which form of government best benefits which group of people? If I can add a teeny bit to that, I fully 100% agree. Uh, I'd like to make a little observation um, and hope that you have uh, among your audience uh, some folks who are uh, worried about vote fraud uh, because of the extent to which the president has raised this as an issue. I cannot, maybe I'm ignorant, I cannot think of a single example in governmental history anywhere where the people out of power rigged the election as opposed to the people 
in power. So the idea that there will be or could be vote fraud, I think, is a very real idea. Uh, but it is not a real idea to think that the party not in power can rig the election. So I, I won't... To play, to play devil's advocate on this point, though, again, going to the, to the way that the, the American system is, is built, can't you create uh, uh, the, the groundwork for fraud on the local level? Yes, absolutely. But of course, at the local level, there are lots of Republican governments and lots of Democrat governments. So it's not particularly easy to tilt the national outcome your way uh, from the local level unless you can organize and coordinate across a very large number of localities. The problem then arises, uh, as the defeat of Hillary Clinton reminds us, that you only need, as Alistair pointed out, you only need to win a minimal number of counties to tip a state. Um, and there's no reason to think that that Ability favors one party. The party out of power is in a much weaker position to do that than the party in power. Because the party in power, while at the local level you can manipulate, at the national level can prevent the mail, for example, from being delivered. Local parties are not in a position to do that. I want to I want to turn to ask you about media, d digital media specifically. It just struck me when I was rereading your book that it actually had a lot more glimmers of optimism than I remember from my first time reading it. And that optimism is rooted in the potential of technology to allow individuals to coordinate. And through that coordination, perhaps expand the necessary coalition of essential, or at least the selectorate. And some of those thoughts about technology were in reference to the Arab Spring that was happening at the time, and obviously was a largely coordinated through social media. But now I'm wondering with the distance of time and with the role of social media in politics so hotly debated, I wonder if any of your thoughts on this have changed. Well, we were very pessimistic about the uh, Arab Spring. Uh, we were at the time. We wrote about the Arab Spring at the time very pessimistically. Um, but we do, I mean, I certainly do believe that uh, certain types of technology uh, make rigging uh, democracies more difficult. Uh, I'm not a big, big fan of people who think that um, social media uh, is a way of, pr of, of promoting better government because it's much easier for a government to choke off social media than it is for people on social media to coordinate with each other. Um, and, of course, the Chinese have been very good at choking off access to information. I'm always amazed. Uh, we have a lot of uh, students from China at NYU, as at most universities. And how many of them come to the United States completely unaware that Tiananmen Square occurred? And then they discover, her. oh, my God, I had no idea. Uh, it's so I, I, I believe technology makes information more readily available, which helps to bolster people organizing, but it also makes disinformation readily available. It's, it's an arms race uh, over who's going to get the momentary advantage in producing 
truthful information, information that distorts in that direction, or information that distorts in this direction? I guess neither Bruce nor I are big social media people. So, um, I mean, we, I guess we look at Facebook to see friends, children. That's about the, that's about the limit that we actually use social media. Um, I, I know many people think that it's sort of the end of the world because there's all this uh, fake news that's being distributed. But I think it's just a function of our time that we, we focus on this and we ignore the fact that newspapers and the news media is extremely partisan. You know, we can go back to um, the early founding days of the Republic and the things that will be written in the newspapers about uh, the different candidates. You know, we've got uh, Jefferson and Adams calling uh, each other like uh, hermaphrodites and all, all kinds of despicable things, doubting the you know, the uh, virtues of each other's wives and, and such things. Uh, it's not a modern thing to tell lies in a public forum to make the other person look bad. And this is, goes back throughout history. We just focus on it because we see this news media. Um, I also know we have a very big social media department here. And one of the things they do is they like to look at, you know, how many people pick up on this news and get the get distorted by um and and we see big distortion so my colleague did this great article and it was very widely picked up in the press that old people tend to be more susceptible to fake news than the young but then i was just talking to him one day but the actual number the actual absolute yeah the ratio the proportion of old people who have tricked compared to the young is much higher but the absolute number of people who are being tricked is not especially large. Is that is that is is that? I guess I guess I just want to push on that a little because it seems to me I'm, I'm thinking about those uh, old examples from history with the newspapers, and I guess the difference is is scale, right? I mean, more people have Facebook accounts in a lot of small countries, and I do wonder once you have once that many people are accessing uh, misinformation. It, you don't think it's possible that the kind of the the scale of influence kind of tips and can actually potentially change the the dynamics of 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 even power. And I just want to before you 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 answer, I just want to parenthetically add a pet peeve of mine. I'm 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 one of those people who jump when I hear misinformation because I think too many things get batched under the title of misinformation or fake news, and that's a crime of inaccuracy that we in the media often commit. Not to mention the president. So you can see this label being used to discredit news on both sides. What interests me about the scale of social media, as Vanessa put it, even if you put aside misinformation, is just the ability that social media gives political leaders to carve out their own attention silos. <laughs> you, you half uh, or 100% sarcastically call democracies um, a competition for good ideas because that's kind of the, the currency of leaders that they need to sell their public a good, a good sounding idea. Is that, is that something that just becomes more easy under, uh, with, with everybody plugged into uh, uh, an information machine and you can just make people feel better about their situation without necessarily offering material um, improvements in their life? Um, so let, 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 I think we should always put these things in perspective. So I'm not going to deny that there's the possibility of giving people incorrect information and, and making them believe a set of facts that, that aren't true. 
Um, but I think we always want to keep this in the perspective of, is this vastly different from before? So yes, it's true that I might get inundated by fake news, but I also have access through social media to so many other news sources I could go to. Now compare that to uh, the early republic where you may only have one town or county newspaper. You have a single source of news, and if that news is biased, you have nowhere else to go and get it. And 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 we, you, I, I hear the rhetoric that social media is so terrible. But you know, if I don't really believe a story, I can flip on the Guardian or the New York Times or the BBC, or I can go other places. There's lots of places I can go to confirm things that I just don't believe to be true, um, which I never had in the. Uh, historically, people just they never had access to that information. So, yeah, I'm sure people are. Some people are deluded, but the proportion of people you can delude, I think, is probably lower than it in a, a contemporary in, in a historical context than the historical context. So, I, I just don't think it's as bad as as, as people make it out. Let me add a little bit to that in light of some other things that we've uh, talked about. So today, a lot of people are worried about uh, social media as a source of distortion, of fake news, and so forth. And one decade ago, people looked at social media as the mechanism by which people could coordinate and rebel against the oppressive government in Egypt uh, and the oppressive government in 2009 in Iran with a uh, rigged uh, Ahmadinejad election and so forth. So we simply, we have flipped whether social media is a source for good or a source for harm. Uh, and in reality, of course, as I said, there is an arms race between the two, whether good and bad or two different directions in any event, uh, in the use of social media. And the net effect is very, very, very small, as Alistair has indicated. So there was all this social media pressing the Arab Spring. And all this talk about how Egypt was going to become a democracy, here we are, it's a military dictatorship. And in 2009, there was all this talk about the frustration of the Iranian people, and they were ready to rise up and overthrow the theocratic government. And here we are, theocratic government, 11 years later. So uh, if one looks at very short term, it looks like, the, like things like social media can move things. Uh, if one looks a, a little bit longer horizon, not so much. Um, as Alistair said, in the good old days, which were not so good, there was a lot less information available, a lot harder for people to sort it out. If we go back to Cicero's campaign to be elected consul of Rome, his brother Quintus Tullius wrote a pamphlet, which one can still read, um, advising Cicero on how to campaign for office in a, in a world where there was very little, where people had very little access to alternative information. He said, tell the crowd whatever they want to hear. They won't know that you told the next crowd the opposite. And be sure to point out the sexual depravity of your opponent. It doesn't matter if it's true. It only matters if a few people believe it. And so don't vote for that person, even if they just stay home and don't vote for you. That's, that's a gain for you. That's Quintus Tullius uh, in the second century BC. So um, we, we, 
it, it, it's pleasant to think that social media is the mechanism for advancing truthful ideas. It's scary to think that it's the mechanism for advancing false ideas. But arms races sort out to an equilibrium, which is an equilibrium in which there is no consequence. I know Vanessa has a question. I just um, because right now uh, the, the, the our audience might be comprised almost entirely of of uh, R- Roman history. Here. <laughs> uh, um, I will I will note that we are aware that that it's probably not uh, Cicero, Cicero's brother who wrote the the truth. Yes, that is true. We just I just wanted to add the asterisk. Okay. We are aware. We Credentials get, established get like. before before we get the angry complaint mails. Um, I like you said. Kick Okay. <laughs> yes, that's the double the asterisk. Take it we don't know how they pronounced it. Yeah, anyway. Um, but yeah, but just just to keep on this um, this idea uh, or expand this this uh, the kind of the conversation that we've had around mostly governments, um, and now thinking about the ways that these dynamics play out in other institutions, I, I would love to talk about um, higher education, especially in the United States. Um, I, I think we would all agree that, you know, we need uh, universities to maintain our, our liberal society. Yet within the institution of higher education themselves, within the universities, they tend to operate within with these smaller coalitions, which seems to be kind of against the more kind of democratic ideals um, that that we would we would assume of them. So I'm curious to get your takes on, you know, with universities, does their leadership structure, you know, will it corrupt them in the end and kind of subvert the, uh, the, their, their, their mission, which is to kind of create a more and maintain a more liberal society. And you're both tenured, right? So, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Itself a corrupt institution. Uh, you know, universities are not democracies, and they're not diversities. They're universities. Um, universities are small coalition political systems. Uh, their 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 selectorate may be. Uh, the faculty and the donors and the students. But the coalition is a very small set of people. Um, It happens that you can have benign dictatorships and you can have not benign dictatorships. You know, Lee Kuan Yew did a very good job for the people of Singapore, but he was most assuredly a dictator. Um, The beauty about universities is that while they are each small coalition systems, they are competing with thousands of other colleges and universities. And that competition forces them to adopt, in the main, uh, policies that make them attractive to people who can pay tuition, uh, students and their parents. Uh, And that means that they are compelled to pay attention to the interests of a very large group of people. And so, by and large, they do a pretty good job. They've got lots of limitations, of course. Um, I point out as somebody who is a tenured professor at the liberal left-leaning New York University, that I am also a senior fellow emeritus at the conservative right-leaning Hoover Institution uh, at Stanford University. I've seen the operations of both sorts of worlds. Uh, And at the end, well, they, they all have their constraints. They are answering to a larger audience, 
and that larger audience is disciplining them to be relatively well behaved. I, I want to stay on universities, but ask the opposite question. For years, and I think increasingly so, there's been complaints, especially from the right, that the way that these big audiences have been disciplining the institutions has been resulting in a narrowing of the worldviews allowed within them. So the democratic, quote-unquote, pressures on universities have actually caused illiberal results. I know that your, broadly speaking, uh, colleague, Jonathan Hyatt, has been writing and speaking a lot about this. And I'm just wondering if that's something that you, that you also encounter. So I have never confronted that. I've never experienced that. There is no question that it occurs in universities. There's no question that there uh, are people who try within the university setting to restrict freedom of speech. Um, and uh, that's a horrible thing in my view. Uh, University is about learning how the world works, not about, in my view, not about pretending it works the way you would like it to work. Uh, so, of course, that's, that, that's a threat to the success of universities, but it's an extremely competitive system. So, if you see one place is restricting your ability to think differently from others, you can go someplace else or lots of places to go. Uh, it's a self-correcting system. It wanders, you know, in, in, in the 50s, it wandered off in a uh, bad direction, restricting freedom of speech uh, from a uh, right-leaning perspective, an anti-communist, anti-socialist perspective. And today it leans uh, against freedom of speech from a left-leaning perspective, uh, not offending this group, not offending that group. These things, in my view, self-correct because they're not healthy. And, and, and like you said, like you, you see the universities as responding to a large enough audience that they will have to self-correct. Yes, exactly. In the same way that they did back in the 60s. Now they will, things will balance themselves out. And again, you, you do have a lot of optimism about American institutions. So uh, <laughs> relative, relative optimism. That's, let, uh, me, let me give you another comparison that might be useful to put this in perspective. We, we don't restrict our way of thinking about institutions and governance structures just to countries. So we, we like to think about companies too. Companies have people who run them, CEOs who run them. That's the leader. They have they have the elites around them. These are the senior management team and the board members. And they have people who can depose them. And one way to think about this structure is like how concentrated are the shares? You know, we, we might think of if if uh, tens of millions of people each have a couple of shares of a company, effectively they cannot they cannot coordinate enough to remove that management team, whatever that management team. We might think of this as the corrupt electoral the corrupt uh, electoral system equivalent uh, of uh, that we see in politics. We might see a partnership. We might think of as much closer to a democracy, in the sense that the, the you have to keep a large number of the partners happy, and the partners can coordinate easily to remove you. So that's much more of a, a democratic type system. But firms face this external constraint that countries don't in the fact that even if a country fails, it remains this sovereign integral unit. 
and countries go bankrupt, but they don't get, they don't have their assets taken away. The, the bailiffs don't come in and kick you off that piece of land because your government went bankrupt. So that's one, that's sort of a, a fundamental difference. And so firms that th- are very, um, the, the sort of the uh, public limited firms have, in many cases, have this structure that the share ownership is so diverse that the executive team and the manager can actually pretty much get away with whatever they want to do, except for the fact that they have to balance the books. They have to be able to make enough money to pay themselves very large bonuses, very large salaries, very large stock options. And if they fail to do so, the company goes bankrupt and, get, and, and, and the company's gone. That, that's companies that aren't ran well go bankrupt. Companies that are large, multi, uh, large publicly traded companies send huge amounts of resources to to the chief executives. We, we only have to look at how wealth is distributed in the U.S. to see how well executives are paid. Um, but they do face this constraint that they can't get away with running things very badly. So you know, we could think of this almost in terms of like uh, we we we. In much of our work, we found out that democracies fight much better than non-democracies, but we don't tend to see states being wiped out to the extent that we would see in, in this sort of contest of economic contest between businesses. So this is this is the extent I think Bruce is pointing to. Universities have this external constraint, just like firms do. Indeed, we did a study using using the selective theory to predict which companies would commit securities fraud and which wouldn't. And it turned out it was quite predictable and for reasons unlike the economic explanation of fraud. Can you, can you break it down? In a nutshell, the, the best early warning indicator that a firm is likely to commit securities fraud is that it's uh, senior management, the folks whose salaries have to be reported on a, a 10K required by the SEC, um, their pay relative to their industry sector, their QCIP number, is low, not high. They are underpaying themselves because they know the company is in trouble. They're hiding that to try to save the company, and um, they're husbanding whatever resources they can to try to put things back together. And, of course, most of the time they probably succeed, and so we don't discover the fraud, uh, and sometimes... Rarely they fail, and then we get to see the fraud. But if you know some things about how large is the coalition on which they depend, how large is the selectorate from which that coalition is drawn, and how much is being allocated to public and to private goods, dividends versus uh, rewards to the, the coalition, their pay and that sort of thing, you can predict who will commit fraud. Oh, that's fascinating. So you basically see how aligned the the executives are with the with the state of the company and how how reflective yeah. or at least honest yeah. they are about their, its state. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's sort of the, so. The basic idea is we we sort of talk the kinds of policies that different governance structures produce differs. So if uh, if the if the the structure of ownership and control is a particular way we would expect a particular set of compensation schemes. So when you see people adopting policies that are inconsistent with the structure of governance, then either there's one of two things. Either they're sort of lying because they actually don't have the money to pay themselves, 
or, or they're likely to get kicked out because they're offering policies that somebody somebody could do a better job for the insiders of, 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 of offering better policies. So Bruce had to leave and technology failed us because as our motto says, everything is broken. We picked up the next day with Alistair and here's the rest of the conversation. One topic that was very interesting is the way you challenge some of our intuitions regarding international efforts to weaken or bring reform to oppressive regimes. Specifically, you have a whole chapter which can amount to a screed against international aid. What, what do we get wrong about foreign aid? Where do our intuitions about how to make the world a better place collapse or, or go <laughs> become counterproductive? Well, most of us tend to think of foreign aid as helping people in desperate need, and that's a very noble goal to have. Unfortunate consequences of providing foreign aid, particularly in countries where the leadership is not very accountable, is it takes away, it takes, it, to a greater extent, it takes away what little accountability there is in a government. So thinking of the analogy we were talking a little bit earlier about um, firms having to be competitive if if you don't have money you have to incentivize people to do work to be economically productive so you can tax them so you can earn money so you can pay off your political supporters now one of the things that makes people work is you let them talk you let them congregate you let them associate and have um, opinions and travel and things like that because that makes them productive but it also makes them a political liability to you because they it, those are exactly the things that help them coordinate against you wouldn't it be great if all you already had the money just sitting in the bank to pay off all your supporters and you didn't actually have to rely on the people to do any work so one of the sad things about aid just very much like I suspect many people are familiar with sort of petrostates, is that when you've just got money flowing into the bank that you don't need the people to do any work, then you don't have to allow the people to talk to each other. You don't have to let them meet. You don't have to let them associate. You don't have to give them an advanced education. And I want to keep you on this point for another second just to uh, to tease it apart. You said like uh, petrostates, and in your book, you go in depth into how, and this is one of the Um, perhaps the a thing that prevents a free society from developing is, like you said, if you have a free association and an and educated class, you have higher odds at uh, getting a society that is, that, that is productive and can make, uh, generate its own revenue, which is, which is theoretically good for the leader and their coalition. But what is even better is if they don't have to rely on these people, and that's the case with... Absolutely. That's exactly the thing with petrostates, you know, and it's, it's incentive compatible with the oil company. They like a place where the people are kept suppressed because nearly all the workers are expatriates. They come from overseas. They put a big fence around the oil well. They pump the oil out. They give the leader a proportion of it. They don't have to worry about labor standards, environmental standards. They make a lot of profit. The leader gets a lot of money, and it keeps the people suppressed and poor and isolated. What, and actually, one of the shocking things, uh, Bruce and I did a little work uh, after Muammar Gaddafi got deposed, and one of the things we noticed about him, I mean, we all think of him as a horrible human being, which undoubtedly he was, but he actually allowed more media freedom and a higher level of education than his neighboring states. And he actually had exactly the opposite incentive to do so because he was so it was such a huge petro state. 
he didn't need anybody to do any work at all. So in some sense, he was very foolish in that he allowed people to get advanced educations. He allowed there to be relatively, uh, relatively large amount of media. And what did the people do with those freedoms? They rose up against him. So the Saudi kingdom and Russia, they, they understand the game a little bit better than Gaddafi did. Well, I mean, Gaddafi seemed to do pretty well. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head how long he was in power, but he was there uh, a, a long time. Um, it's harder in Russia. It's harder for Putin to completely mm. rely on all re oil revenue because it's such a big country with so many people and oil prices haven't been that high. The Saudis can get away with it because the, you know, the actual number of Saudi citizens, the selectorate is very, very low. Um, and the oil revenues are huge. So even when the oil price is low, there's still plenty of money to go around. Um, but, you know, P Putin has this balancing act. When the oil price goes up, I'm sure Russia will become even more repressive. And when the oil price goes down, Putin needs to find money to pay off supporters and he has to liberalize. Um, so bit. how does that? So now take that. Take us back to, uh, to foreign aid. Foreign aid works for um collapsing regimes as kind of like natural resources work for a for a single resource country yeah exactly um it's exactly like that if i'm you know if you need to make if you need to let the people work effectively to get tax revenue you have to give them some freedoms if you already have that money just going into your pocket then you don't have to grant the freedoms so you know leaders will say well we've a crisis lend us money and then we'll do reform there's no way the leader, once they, the crisis has gone away, they'll never make those reforms. They're not in their interests. So I don't think we should ever do these kinds of things. So we did a, an interesting study at one point looking at the UN Security Council. Um, one of the things that's been noted is when you get elected to the Security Council, as one of the rotating members, you get access to a lot more aid. You get preferential loans. You get better terms at the World Bank and the IMF, regional banks. They all give you money. So you'd think this would actually be good for development. So we actually did a study. If you compare the people who get into the Security Council with comparable nations who don't, they grow slower and they become less democratic and they have less press freedoms. It's, it's sort of getting elected to Security Council is great for the political leadership. It's terrible for the people. How do you liberalize a country then? How do you, is, there, is there something that, that, is there a strategy for liberalizing a country or is it just let, letting it collapse to the point where you need to make your own public productive? This is, this is always one of the things we, I think we make a mistake is that we sort of assume that the US wants to liberalize other countries, but that's not always the case. So if you think about the incentives um, of, of the U.S. government, if a, if a country is poor and autocratic, you don't have to pay a leader very much money to do what you want instead of what the people want. If you if you have if a leader is accountable to millions of people and you want them to do something, you have to give them an awful lot of money to go to do in, impose your will instead of what the people want. You have to give them a lot more money. So it's expensive. If you liberalize countries, you have to pay them more. And you can't get as many favors from them. So I think we take, uh, we, we believe the rhetoric that the US wants to go around liberalizing countries. I think in many cases, they don't want to do that. I mean, Iraq's not been, has not been a functional democracy since we invaded, nor is Afghanistan. Um, we put the sham, we put sham institutions up 
that allow political leaders to survive and not be particularly accountable to the people, and then they can do what we want. We can buy them and pay them off to do what the U.S. wants. Good for the U.S., good for the U.S. citizens. Uh, it's not so good for the citizens of those countries. So I think your question is misplaced in the fact that how do we do it? I don't think we even want to do it. I mean, the ways to do it are hold people to account, refuse to give them money when they're, when they're in trouble, support freedom of information within those countries, don't bail people out when they have financial difficulties until they've actually made reforms in advance of being bailed out. But I don't think that's in our interest to do that. So that's why we don't do it. Would you have time for one last question? I have is it's been burning in my brain since yesterday. If that's okay, I'll start. Go for it. So yesterday I asked um, about infrastructure, and I, I kind of couched it in terms of that we're in an infrastructure crisis. And I asked, it kind of, I, and I think Bruce saying, you know, um, I wouldn't use that term. And and also like when you compare us to let's say North Korea, you know, our infrastructure is pretty, pretty good. And what's more, we have kind of these institutional structures in place that kind of limit the extent to which we can really go into Mm -hmm. crisis. And, And as I heard that, I was thinking, but the way that our infrastructures are set up seem to me so rooted in kind of inequitable systems and institutions in terms of kind of, for example, you know, water and education uh, and the way that we're taxing for, to have access to those kinds of quote unquote public goods, which are less seem like less actually public these days. And so I, my, I guess I'm curious to get your thoughts on you know, do we are we really going to be able to um, course correct if the if the system itself seems like it's kind of corrupt from from the it's corrupt itself? Let me pick up on one thing you said there because I wasn't quite certain where you were going, but you were talking about the inequities of the way yes. we provide things. So we we can all think of the groups that are most disinf- uh, disadvantaged by the current U.S. policy. And it's exactly those kinds of groups that aren't important to any political leader in building a coalition. So let's take, let's take an example. We do almost nothing to help the homeless. Well, why would anybody, why would a political leader want to help the homeless? Help that the homeless don't vote. So they're never going to be part of a winning mm-hmm. coalition. So any leader that spends money on the homeless is taking money out the pockets of supporters in terms of taxes or cutting other programs that political supporters would like. The homeless, the best thing they could do is actually vote, and then they might be a block that leaders would want to help. I think, you know, political leaders are more interested in how do we keep the homeless from bothering people on the streets? Let's ship them to other states or, you know, or just make it, you know, we design furniture so that people, homeless people can't sleep on a bench because we want to move Every leader wants to push that problem off onto another jurisdiction. They don't want to solve the problem because solving the problem takes money, and that's not in the interest of their supporters. Um, and that's and that's why um, the countries in equ- uh, that we can think of groups that have been disenfranchised. Minorities tend to vote at lower rates. We also see the produ- uh, the introduction of sort of minority majority districts. Those districts are, we take a minority and we concentrate the minority into a single electoral district. Well, they, they, that, that, that group as, as a whole only gets one representative. So they're very unlikely to be critical on very many decisions. So again, they're unlikely to be key to forming a legislative coalition or keeping a leader in power. And therefore, 
you don't do very much for those groups. That's sort of the, if people aren't part of the winning coalition and they have no prospect of being in the coalition, they're not gonna, they're not gonna get rewards or policies that help them. I mean, the best thing you could do if you want better represent, if you want policies that help you is to turn up and vote. So what do you do about groups like, say, the homeless who are locked out of the equilibrium that we've landed on? Uh, There's always private goods in societies. So I I think you would call me a cynic, but I'm going to be realistic. Let's go to the homeless because it's a very easy, it's a a very clear, distinct group. Um, Is it anybody's interest? Is it in anybody's interest to help the homeless? There are people who care about them deeply, but if the money has to come out of their pockets or programs that they benefit from, are they going to support that political leader over a political leader that is going to try and push all the homeless to go to an opposing jurisdiction? Um, you know, I mean, we know people, you know, put homeless on the bus and send them to Florida. Um, that's cost effective for the taxpayers of a district to deal with a homeless problem. It may be morally and ethically wrong, but it's good politics. And at the end of the day, do we want to pay more taxes to help the homeless? Some of us do. Many of us don't. And therefore, it's, it's unlikely to happen. It's, it's not the leader's fault. The leader's doing, in some sense, what we want. They're just a, you know, that's why foreign aid is not, is designed to buy policy. We, design, we want stable oil supplies in the Middle East. We don't really want democratic societies in the Middle East. That's great window dressing, and we make lots of niceties about it. But a democratic, a democratic country in the Middle East might not do what we want. So why risk doing that when we can, in the long run, it's probably a great policy, but in the short term, and leaders care about the short term because they want to get reelected. Um, but we, we, want, we want cheap oil. We want a stable Middle East. So we support leaders that provide those policies. So it's our fault. Not, we, can, we can only blame our leaders so much. Right. And come, just, you know, all we can do is vote. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's the only I, thing yeah, I, speak. I, I mean, I can't because I'm not a citizen, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, my kids are all queuing up for their first election this year. So, uh, really? But you, you, but you, haven't you been here long enough to be to claim your coveted passport? I, I actually have a green. I, I could, I, I, I believe I probably could get citizenship fairly easily because I've been here 30 years now, but um, I have not applied. I'm still a British citizen, but my uh, and as you probably realise, in in the presidential election, New York is hardly a marginal state. So uh, <laughs> um, anyway, that that that's that's another <laughs> thing. It's uh, my, my kids were very important. They were all in the Yang gang. They were uh, <laughs> they were all the Yang supporters. But uh, wow, that's a whole were, other podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, I I actually think give us. Give us 20 years, I think the policy debate will not be should we have a permanent income, but how big it should be. I think the guy is just 20 yeah. years ahead of his time. He also didn't yeah. actually have seem to have any other policies that he could really be articulate right. on, and he was left sort of a little naked on, on the dis- debate stand when people asked him other things. But uh, I think, you know, it's a competition for ideas in democracies, and I think that's a good idea that will catch on and it, it will 
I, I think you know we should all expect some kind of permanent income at some point. Alistair, thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. Uh, been a fun, fun chatting with you guys. Thank you, Alistair Smith and Bruce Bernard de Mesquita. And thank you, you wonderful people who are listening to Uncertain Things. Make sure to follow us on uncertain.substack.com. Like and share wherever you get your podcasts and your socials. And stay safe. I get so angry hearing my voice. I think that's enough. Uh, we should start this episode like that. <laughs> Voice. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, Adam, you have to make a podcast today. I'm sorry. <laughs>